Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 17th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the jury selected for the Aurora Theater shooting trial. 19 out of the 24 people selected are women, with some revealing coincidental connections to the night of the incident. Lynn Barles from the Denver Post, when uh, it was finally released, what did you think of the jury pool? Well, first of all, I thought it was a lot of women, but more than anything, having covered the Oklahoma City bombing trial and the anniversary of the bombing is Sunday, it just brought back so many members and I thought this is a life-changing experience for all of these people. Mm -hmm. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School, uh, were you surprised at the makeup and really some of the connections that some of these uh, jurors have to Columbine, the incident, uh, various things uh, through in, within the Colorado community? Well, on these these mass terrorist attacks of Columbine and the Aurora Theater, it's not surprising that in the community lots of people have some connection and have been affected by it in, in various ways. I greatly respect those 24 who didn't come up with some bogus excuse of, oh, my, you know, my cat has a, a broken paw, so I can't do it or whatever. These are people who are, are whatever they decide, I'll, and I'll leave that to them. They're good, they're good patriotic Americans who are standing up to do their civic duty, sacrificing several months of their time, and then having to make a, a very important decision. This is the way our system works. It's not just the people, you know, your only obligation is to pay taxes and then try to get as much loot back as you can from the government. It's active participation in our governance by serving in a jury. So my hat's off to all 24 of them. Eric Sonderman, political analyst, uh, were you surprised they were able to come up with the jury pool, I guess, relatively quickly? I mean, we thought 9,000 people, they would be going on for, for really weeks, and it seemed quick to me. What do you think? Well, it seemed quick compared to the expectation, but the expectation wasn't exactly quick. Nothing about this trial has been quick. Nothing about this trial will be quick. David's point about civic duty is, uh, is absolutely uh, right, on, right on the mark. Uh, the interesting thing about this to me was just, it, once again, all of us bump into this in our daily lives, but it confirmed that Denver, while it is a big metropolitan area, it's one of these two degrees of separation kind of town, and, you know, everyone sort of has a connection to everyone and even in this horrific incident you saw people with connections to Columbine or connections to that horrific evening in Aurora or whatever the ones I feel a little bit sorry for are the ones who are alternates so they have you know they're gonna spend several months of their life hearing this gruesome testimony probably be prepared to make a decision render a verdict but not have the opportunity to do so but that's the way the system works mm -hmm. And Natasha Gardner, senior editor at 5280 Magazine, wrap it up for us. You know, many years ago, I actually served on a jury for a murder trial. So I have a very, very, very small idea of what these people are going to go through. Um, as we've mentioned at this table already, it's an immense civic duty. It is an important part of our legal system, but it is an important indication of our, our society and such an important part of, of how we do things. So that's, that's um, a, a tremendous uh, tremendous faith in what, what they're going to do. But in, in, in addition to that, I think we have to remember that even if you're not in that courtroom, this community is going to be affected by every day of this trial. Um, you know, mental wellness, just sort of how we feel about things is, is something we have to keep perspective on, too. So even the, if you're not one of those 24, I think this trial is going to severely impact people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. <coughs> 
A proposal that would expand the current magazine ammunition limit to 30 rounds is triggering an interesting battle among gun rights advocates in Colorado. Rocky Mountain gun owners are against the idea and have urged lawmakers to accept only a full repeal of the limit. Meanwhile, others, including the Independence Institute, believe the concept is a step in the right direction. Lynn, you wrote a very important part of this, not only of the, the conflict between these two organizations, but also what happened at the legislature yesterday as a procedural move uh, by folks who are uh, uh, supported by the Rocky Mountain gun owners. Tell us about that and how all this kind of comes together. Well, the, the bill to repeal the limit died Monday in committee, as expected, on a party line vote. And there was a move on the floor, never ever happened before in legislative history, to say, let's change the record to say that bill really did pass. And they ended up voting on, and of course it was ruled out of order, and then the next motion was, let's overturn the Speaker's rule. And in that vote, it was kind of strange because I think a lot of people thought most of the Republicans would vote against it. it it ended up only five Republicans voted with the Democrats. Had nothing, they did not vote on the gun bill itself, but on this procedural move. But Dudley Brown, with Rocky Mountain gun owners, has already threatened on the radio that these people will possibly be primaried and everything. And it was, it was just such a strange thing, but it shows this, this rift on this bill. Now, for example, um, I know that there are people, who, the Independence Institute would like to see a late bill introduced in the session to basically increase the limit to 30 rounds, because most rounds are of 30. And they are opposed by Rocky Mountain gun owners that says, you know, no compromise. It's all or nothing. And the Independence Institute is furious over it. Now, it's created this war on Facebook, on Twitter, social media, radio, with them going after each other. Uh, Dudley Brown refers to surrender monkeys. And then you have Caldera and company saying, so now it's Rocky Mountain gun owners and Michael Bloomberg who won't let me have a 30 round. It's interesting because these were two groups that were on the same side in 2013 when Democrats passed those bills. And now it's just created this strange implosion. The bottom line is there's a lot of Republicans who feel that Dudley doesn't want this because he can raise more money when he says, look, they took away our gun rights. So why would he want this? It would give you bigger gun rights, but it might hurt your fundraising. All right. Well, we happen to have here Senator from the Independence Institute as a regular part of our panel, uh, David Kopel. Um, I'm just going to let you go at it. We have a lot of pieces of this. You have been an expert on a variety of uh, gun issues for us. Uh, the floor is yours. Lynn nailed it at the end. It's a fundraising for Dudley problem if the magazine ban is 99% repealed uh, to change it from 15 to 30. Dudley and his group have been around in Colorado as lobbyists since the late 90s, and yet they have never passed a single bill. He's also got his national group, so-called National Association for Gun Rights, which has never passed a single bill in Congress. An impressive record of futility, but only if you think of his group in the same way you'd think of real gun rights groups like Gun Owners of America or the National Rifle Association or the Farms Coalition of Colorado. As Dudley explained to a meeting of friendly recently elected legislators a few weeks after the election, he said don't work with people like Copel because then when they pass something it makes it harder for us to raise money. Dudley's shtick is to keep 
people upset and angry and giving him money and never to solve any problem. So that's why, for example, in 2003, he opposed the Concealed Carry Act, which was passed and signed by Governor Owens, supported by the National Rifle Association, by the Firearms Coalition of Colorado, and by the, the, uh, the county sheriffs of Colorado. It is not a perfect bill, but it was a huge improvement from what existed before, and it's been very positive in how it's helped tens of, many, many tens of thousands of gun owners exercise their right to bear arms. But Dudley always opposes something that could actually pass and help gun owners. That's why he's lying right now in Congress against the NRA's national right to carry bill, which would mean that you as a Colorado resident with your carry permit, you could carry in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and New York City. It's why he lies about everyone in the real gun rights movement. It's why he says Alan Gottlieb of the Second Amendment Foundation is the national leader for national gun registration. It's why he says I am a Bloomberg cell, a sleeper cell. So there's two possible views of reality. One is Dudley's a liar, a huckster, and a hoax who is preying off people and taking their money not for gun rights but to, a, to support himself. The other possibility is that Dudley's telling the truth and that I am a sleeper cell for Michael Bloomberg. You can decide which one is more plausible. <laughs> it's either the huckster or Homeland, one of the two. Okay, I, I can see uh, Luis has something to, to uh, look forward to here. Eric, when we look at, I guess, you look at the Republican Party, not known in Colorado for a bastion of unity anyway. But you see something like this come down where this isn't going to affect moderate Republicans or um, even on the libertarian side. We're talking about the uh, gun right advocate Republicans who are very seldom going to go anywhere else. But I'm not sure if it's being split or threatened, but Dudley Brown has effectively primaried that happened in those two Senate districts in Jefferson County where one of them, uh, Lang Sias, lost to a much more conservative Republican really because of the support that person got from Rockman gun owners. So there's effectiveness here, but I don't know what it means for that sect of the Republican Party. How do you look at this whole situation? Oh, it means ultimate long-term problems for that sector of the party as it has yes this woman up in Westminster Laura Woods did manage to win in a Republican wave election but that is the exception not the norm normally as Dudley and a few others of his ilk have taken this party t further and further to the right you've seen what has happened over the last decade in this state which has become a a rather uh, a blue state. The yes, Gory Gardner won, and yes, Republicans had a good year in 14, but it was the first good year that they had had um, in a decade. Uh, sitting around this table in this seat following uh, David, I often take a different course than him on gun issues, and our, uh, our views of that world or that issue are not always the same. On this one, his strong words were absolutely right on. Um, Dudley Brown is a hoax. He is a huckster. Uh, I might disagree with David Cope on some issues. In my wildest imagination, I have never sort of thought that uh, somehow he's in cahoots with Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> and to suggest that is... is uh, we it's, it's, we it's, probably have some video that, uh, of a recent card of Inside I mean, Out. So I, <laughs> you have to either that. be in touch with an alternate reality, believe that, <laughs> or you just have to be in touch with the sound of your own voice and to rev up that grievance that grievance group that Dudley Brown runs and keep that money gravy train coming. 
everyone knew when the Democrats passed those gun bills back in 2013, and whatever you made of them, and I supported most of them, but the, the weakness in that package of bills was the 15-round limit in the magazine ban. Governor Hickenlooper acknowledged as much at the time, even though he signed it and then tried to backtrack with that awkward appearance before the sheriffs, etc. Here is an opportunity to get that right. And Dudley Brown, because he wants to keep his people, and shame on anyone who listens to Dudley Brown and gives him money and believes him, but there is a constituency out there that does that. But shame on them. But he needs to keep those people in a perpetual state of uproar. Um, in order to keep his gravy train going. Mm -hmm. uh, I commend any viewer who is interested to Google uh, the Dudley Brown profile in 5280 Magazine and Natasha's magazine. It's roughly a year ago, maybe more than a year ago. Our friend Eli Stokels wrote that, and it points out, I thought it was the best political article, no offense, Lynn, of the, <laughs> in terms of local journalism Absolutely. of the last year or two. Uh, in terms of what ails Colorado politics. I could go on, as David and others have gone on, I'll turn it over, but, uh, and shame on, lastly, shame on the Democrats as well for also rejecting, um, you know, a common sense way to fix this. Right. Natasha, this goes beyond just uh, gun rights advocates. This is going to affect Colorado politics, and it's a story that's probably not going to go away. As you look at it, what's your reaction? Well, maybe I'm trying to be too utopian about it, but the problem I have is that so much of this conversation is about the lobbyists, it's about, you know, one figurehead, it's about that instead of why we actually make laws, and that's because the public have a concern that goes to the legislature, we make laws to address that. So in juxtaposition with what our first conversation, our first topic at this table is, let's go back to why, why that limit was put in place. There was a concern between, say, public safety and gun owners, and, and fine-tuning that law you know, perhaps increasing it to 30, which seems like a common sense thing. I, I mean, I don't know that much about guns personally, but that seems like a common sense. So fine-tuning a law, I don't have a problem with stalling the political process completely, recalling candidates over one vote. These type of things that are having long-term effects in Colorado politics is disappointing, particularly when the the issue, the reason why we, we, we did those things is so poignant and of the moment. We're going through that right now. Mm -hmm. Governor John Hickelooper sent a letter to state lawmakers on Thursday urging major changes to how Colorado collects revenue and issues taxpayer refunds. Legislators from both sides of the aisle met the letter with skepticism, saying there isn't enough time left in the session to tackle something so complicated. David, this one came out of left field, at least for me. Uh, I, it sounds like there might be some really decent ideas in here, but they're pretty far-fetched into that. I hadn't seen anything like this proposed in addressing uh, revenue and how we collect taxes as a state. What did you think of the initial details we received so far? Because it's brand new. It just came out yesterday. Well, one of the ways Governor Hickenlooper is, is very different from all of his predecessors that, that I can remember, going back to Dick Lamb, is how disengaged he is from the legislative process. The you're not supposed to be down there lobbying yourself as, as the governor, but if there's something important, you're, you're keeping an eye on it. And if you have something to say, you say it at a time when it matters. He's like a guy, the budget, the long bill, the, the biggest thing the legislature passes, months of work by the Joint Budget Committee, it's, it's been to both houses, lots of pro and con debate, and he's the equivalent of a guy who after your house is 99% built and they're putting on the curtain rods, he comes in and says, well, maybe we should like tear down 
the entire second story and put a swimming pool up there. It might or might not be a good idea, but it's really late in the process to come in with this, and I'm, I'm, I'm just baffled why, why it took so long. If he wants to talk about it on a forward-looking way, not for this year's budget, but for the future, you know, th then he's, he's on time for this. In, in, in practice, if, if there are pressures on the budget, it's his fault more than anybody else's because he's the one who unilaterally did this Medicaid expansion and everything else in our state budget that is getting squeezed out, whether it's higher education, which actually gets plenty, a lot of per capita support, but everything, all budget pressures are the result of, in the long term, the incredible growth in Medicaid. And besides that, the state gives a billion dollars in corporate welfare every year, and we ought to cut, it th cut that out first before taking away people's tax refunds from them. Eric, I guess David hit on one of my biggest points of confusion, which isn't necessarily the details, because we have, don't have all the details for the proposal, but it's the timing. With only a couple weeks left in the session, nothing can get done this year. If it should be this big uh, presentation that should get a lot of public support, wait till the summer. Um, the timing right now just seemed odd, but what do you think? I think you can certainly second-guess the timing, and many people mm -hmm. will, and David did. I regard it as an act of frustration on Governor Hickenlooper's part. I believe that he has been involved in plenty of private conversations with leadership and thinking that he was moving the ball forward. Maybe he was deluding himself, but thinking he was moving the ball forward, particularly with uh, Senate President Cadman and others. And then all of a sudden he looks at the clock and the session is winding down and it is all stuck. And I think he went to this as somewhat of a last ditch maneuver to try to break things loose. It might be too much last ditch. It has interesting pieces in it. Uh, whatever you make of the Medicaid expansion, and I share some of those hesitations because it is just the elephant that is consuming everything in the state budget right now. At least the idea of turning the hospital provider fee, which was passed back in the Ritter era, and turning that into basically getting it off the books in terms of Tabor uh, impact and turn it into more of an enterprise operation. That does, and I think that ha would enjoy some bipartisan support, more Democrats than Republicans, but some bipartisan support. And that would at least take everything that's going to Medicaid and somewhat wall it off from consuming um, uh, everything else in the state budget, whether it's K-12, whether it's corrections, whether it's roads and transportation or whatever. So I think there's some interesting pieces in this. The question is the timing and whether there is an ability in the last three weeks or whatever's left of the session to really get anything done or cobble together that coalition. Natasha, there seems to be a lot of lawmakers, and frankly from both sides of the aisle, that would like to see something done, I guess mm -hmm. as uh, Governor Hickluber describes, the, the fiscal thicket. Um, do you think, despite the timing, this could lead to some progress with lawmakers, what the governor's proposing? I, I think that need and that desire to have that conversation was happening long before Hickenlooper sent this letter. Um, you know, the timing is a concern, but even outside of the Capitol, uh, I just don't think people want to think about taxes right now. We just filed them. Like, let us <laughs> let us have a little bit of break. And when you start taking talking about taking away a refund, no one wants to have that conversation right now. Um, the problem, uh, the thing that I'm concerned with his letter is that I don't think it addresses the issue. It's a Band-Aid. It's a diversion. It's a squirrel look over there type of approach to what really needs to be discussed, which is Tabor, which is where the frustration on both sides um, with both parties lies. And that conversation, I, I don't think we can avoid it. I think it's coming. I wouldn't see. I wouldn't be surprised if we see renewed conversation about it this summer and into next year, um, and that the voters might have to get involved at some point. It's it's going to happen. 
Lynn, what was your reaction on the Hill when this letter came down? I think the timing thing was the same thing, the tax thing. Um, I saw a lawmaker's wife there, and I go, what is she doing? Is she working here? And he goes, oh, no, she had to come get me to sign the tax return, too, because we owe, you know. I'm going to disagree with a lot of what David said here. John Hickenlooper, I think, has been more engaged this session than any year since he has been governor. He has never been the kind that say, let's have a big press conference to say what I'm working on. He's very much, let's bring people in, let's work behind the scenes, let's do this, let's do that. When you talk about Medicaid and that sort of thing, I can remember, you know, I'm so old that I can, you know, his budget director used to work for Bill Owens. And I can remember back in my early days of covering the ledge when they said Medicaid's gobbling everything up. This isn't something that was created by Bill Ritter. It may have been made worse with the with the provider, the hospital provider fee. The other thing is, I have a question. When you talk about corporate welfare, are you talking about tax credits? No. Oh, you mean tax, like for, What are you referring yeah, to? Like, like, well, for example, like if, if you produce a movie in the state, uh, you not only pay no taxes, that the uh, and then the, the state government gives you money. Uh, you know, you're just some billionaire Hollywood producer, and you get welfare for producing, for filming a movie in Colorado? I'd rather have welfare for movies than some of the other corporate things. I will tell you, the business does come into hearings and say things because of the Gallagher Amendment, and once again, we go back to our strange, screwed-up tax system in this state. Because of the Gallagher Amendment, they pay so much more money than homeowners do on their property, and they feel some of these breaks are needed. Let's get a quick take on this one. The Colorado Republican Party may have quelled a growing controversy by inviting the Law Cabin Republicans to share its booth at the Western Conservative Summit. Early, early in the week, the organization was denied to set up a table by event organizers. Eric, what's your quick take on how this has all come out this week? Well, kudos to Lynn Bartles for covering the story, breaking the story. I think it has dominated local politics somewhat this week. John Andrews, Bill Armstrong, the people who run the Western Conservative Summit and Colorado Christian University, they can invite who they want. It's their event. My point was the optics of this are awful. This is a party that needs to move beyond those optics. I'll repeat my comment that I gave uh, Lynn in an interview a couple days ago. This has become a barrier to entry, this issue, for a whole lot of people who would be otherwise potentially receptive to a conservative message, whether it's on taxes, government's role, regulation, foreign policy, a host of other issues. But this one hits them in the face and they run away and they will never hear that message on other issues until a party can get within the 21st century on this particular issue. And um, I'll be curious to see if there's any Republican presidential candidate who's willing to go sister soldier on this. I'm dubious, but they would be well advised to do so. Natasha, did the state GOP, by inviting the Lockheed Republicans to share their table, quell the controversy? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's out there and it's going to be a problem that they have to deal with. You know, whether you like him or not, I, I would appreciate if Andrew Sullivan was still blogging. I think his, his take on this particular issue would be fan, fan fascinating. Uh, the biggest problem for me, and, and I think Eric was, was saying this as well, is, you know, when we have parties that under this big umbrella start with very focused or sort of isolating topics, what kind of party is that can you get, that you can get behind? And we see this in Colorado with our independent voters. I don't think it's uncommon to have a man who might be fiscally interested in uh, Republican ideals also want to marry his partner of 15 years and believe that climate change exists and that we have water problems in the West. That person exists. It lives. That person probably lives on my street. It lives in our, our neighborhoods. I mean, this is this is who we are. But how does that person fit into today's two-party system? 
I don't think they do. So maybe it's time to rethink how we bring all of that to the table. Sure. Lynn, what's your quick take? I, um, I was really surprised that the new state Republican chairman, Steve House, who people said was elected with the help of some right-wingers, mm -hmm. um, offered the invitation to the log cabin Republicans, and we'll see if he faces any fallout from that. But I just think in this day and age, I, my first instinct was, did they not just hear about Indiana? Right. David, finish it up for us. Well, the event is that it's not being held by Colorado Republican University. It's being held at Colorado Christian University, which is a theologically conservative place. And there's a lot of ideas that they disagree with on principle, even though those ideas might be helpful to the Republican Party. I agree with Eric and I think everybody else. It was a smart move uh, by the state Republican Party, which is the Colorado Republican Party, not the Colorado Christian Party, uh, to invite the log cabin Republicans in, and that's a, a wise move that'll help expand uh, their political outreach. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, but let's do it rather quickly. Uh, Disgrace of the week. Lynn, start us off. On, on the show Survivor, they voted Joe off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Always very unhappy. <laughs> David. The Iran, the Obama plan for the nuclearization of Iran, uh, now Russia is going to be selling them uh, ballistic missile, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, making any action against the Iranians uh, all the more difficult. The, so many facilities would be left in place that the purported promise of inspections is a joke. Eric. Doug Bruce, a name we often talk about around this table, haven't recently facing court action here regarding taxes and delinquent taxes, now in Ohio, facing slumlord action. What a flawed messenger. You know, whatever you make of his message, what a flawed messenger. And Doug, just obey the law and do right. If you're, you're going to own investment property apartments, do right by the people who live there. Natasha. The story that's coming out about the TSA workers that oh. allegedly groped people, what a violation. Yeah. Uh, say something nice rather quickly. Lynn. Um, the Lamar High School superintendent and the principal a couple weeks ago could have said no to us coming down and interviewing them. They opened up the school, people talked to us, and I think we need more of that among schools, and I appreciate Lamar for doing that. I'm not saying anything about their mascot, but I'm just saying they did the right thing, and it helped them get a better story. David. Two weeks ago, Mike Litwin on this show predicted that April is the month in which people can imagine the Rockies winning the championship, and he sure turned out to be right. Eric. David's right. 6-0 and on the road. It's very early, but we'll see. Denver Center Theater Company, two recent productions that I thought just hit it out of the park. Benediction, which is closed. One that my wife and I saw last night called One Night in Miami. Fascinating character study. It's around for another week, and if viewers have a chance to get down there, they should do it. Natasha. A Denver area teacher who simply asked her students what they wanted their teacher to know heard the answers she got back were so compelling and interesting. A good reminder of sometimes asking just one question can can let you learn a lot about people. That's an excellent Twitter sensation. It's fantastic to see. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you miss any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. We started our look at the Denver City Council races, so be sure to check those out online or every Friday at 7 p.m. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night.